Welcome to One Mind Zen. Today's talk is given by Unsan Chita. Suzuki Roshi is often quoted as saying, You're perfect as you are, and you need a little work. Sun Master Sung San quotes from Song of Dharma Nature, The nature of the dharmas is perfect. It does not have two different aspects. All the various dharmas are unmoving and fundamentally still. They are without name and form, cut off from all things. This is understood by enlightened wisdom and not by any other sphere. The nature of the dharmas is perfect. Hmm. Some will point to war, genocide, the Holocaust, child abuse, and all the other events typically perceived as evil as examples of not perfect. And it would be tough to think of any of these uh, measuring up to perfect. That's also the kind of thinking some use to quote-unquote prove or at least question the existence of God, who is also thought of as perfect. It seems to me the first problem we encounter is using the common definition of perfect. Usually that's used to define a state that isn't imperfect, and that's just dualism and dissatisfaction. Dukkha in a nutshell. This neither perfect nor imperfect state is impermanent, so that's not what the Zen masters refer to. Aiming for perfection is a decidedly non-Buddhist activity, as the three doors of liberation are emptiness, signlessness, and aimlessness. And we can think of aimlessness as not expecting a payoff. We don't meditate to become Buddha, any more than we'd polish a brick so it became a mirror. There could be a misunderstanding of the three doors that leads to complacency, even annihilationism. You could mistake the heart sutras that form as emptiness or the diamond sutras, all dharmas are no dharmas, leaving out the second half of those two statements, leading to the annihilationist view that since everything is empty, nothing matters, so party! I'm pretty sure that if you read the sutras, dialogues with great patriarchs, and or if you have a teacher of your own, that none of them will infer that these are the correct interpretation. You could say that if you ain't doing what a Buddha does, you ain't being what a Buddha is. But when we're not feeling particularly Buddha-esque, when we don't think our actions are what the world honored one would have done in the situation we're in now, when things are anything but perfect, there is still something Buddha-like that can be done. Our practice may include meditation, as the Buddha did, in which we examined who or what it is that's feeling like the non-Buddha. We may take refuge in our Sangha, whatever that might be, 
and ask for some guidance, and if not guidance, at least a hint. We may take refuge in the Dharma, maybe by reading a sutra, and maybe by going a step further and examining what the Dharma is without so many dead words. What is this that's asking the question? Help! Hmm. The Buddha really read Ananda the riot act in the Shurangama Sutra. Ananda is asking the same questions and being confused just like I am. Maybe there's something in there that's applicable to me. And quite possibly, we realize that our mental image of what would Buddha do is a pointless exercise in just more thought and more thought that we take as based in reality, when in fact that's not really ha, the case. It's just projecting our quote-unquote selves into a story that is no more real than sky flowers. Ultimately, we examine the self to forget the self, as Dogen put it. We examine and examine some more just what the Dharma in our life is right here and now. What is the Dharma? What is the Dharma? I need to solve this riddle now as if there were no other time to find the answer. In a more honest and less cliched way, what would a Buddha do? But most important, what is a Buddha? I can refer to what the great ancestors said, but they said them a thousand years ago, and they said them to a monk in a Chinese temple, and frankly, I'm not a thousand-year-old Chinese monk, and that's not who's thinking what I'm thinking. One of the first times I went to sit with a Zen group, a man named Alan Drake took it upon himself to uh, coach us novices. I don't know if he was ordained. I got the feeling he had at one time practiced Tibetan Buddhism, but he was there helping us get a handle on this thing we were basically clueless about called Zen. I'd read a lot of general Buddhist writings at that point, and out of all of the traditions, Zen just felt right. I didn't have a clue what any of it meant. I didn't understand what Kongans were when I read them, and how much more so did I not know what they did. I seriously didn't know why he told me to read Moon in a Dewdrop, and really seriously didn't know why he gave me a copy of Nagarjuna's The Middle Way. Oddly enough, I was able to wrap my arms around Nagarjuna more than Dogen, which in retrospect is possibly a bit odd. But Alan was there to guide us, to help us, to relieve our struggle and dissatisfaction with our own situations, different as they may have been from one of us to the next. He said something that never dawned on me, something I hadn't even considered to consider, and that I never thought of as anything but a given. He said that in Buddhism, there is no original sin. 
You could say the same for Judaism, but I wasn't coming from that background, so to my thinking, there was this blot on my and everyone else's eternal soul. He also dispelled a number of other misconceptions in that sentence eventually, but his point was that I and everyone else was not born blemished. At the very least, I was starting with a blank slate, maybe not having the wisdom of the sages, but also not any worse off than anyone else born into this world of struggle. He was planting a seed of our pristine nature in our fertile little heads, though we didn't know it at the time, or what it was called, or how much discussion had gone on about it. I didn't attach name and form to it, whatever it was. Didn't have any attachment to expectations. What was right and wrong about it, whether I agreed with it, whether it was green or yellow, or long or short, but it was as much as anything else a relief. Let's say you just bought a new boat. It's a beautiful boat. It is one rocking boat. There's not a flaw on it. Great paint job, nice finish on the woodwork, comfortable furniture, no leaks. Nothing more could ever be asked for of a boat. Taking it out on the ocean, it holds up really well in both calm and choppy seas. Sure, when it's choppy, it isn't the same smooth ride as when it's placid, but it holds up pretty well nonetheless. Then the cold weather comes, and it seems like it would be a lot easier not to go sailing, at least not today, or tomorrow, or the next day. And soon that pristine boat is starting to get a little bit shabby. There was some food maybe left in the fridge, and that was probably a bad idea unless there's a high school science fair coming up or you're trying to develop biological weapons. Some leaves got blown in from the shoreline and they're starting to accumulate in the corners of the deck. Someone apparently thought that this boat would be a perfect place to toss some old beer cans, especially the ones that, you know, weren't quite entirely empty. And someone else decided the same about their not quite empty soda cans. Between the leftover food and the liquids that were once liquid and are now some other consistency, there are flies and mice, perhaps a couple of wharf rats spending time on deck. That's all obvious, so cleaning it wouldn't really take all that much effort. What's going on below the waterline, however, is more insidious. Barnacles. Really well-attached, verging on embedded barnacles. So far as the boat is concerned, it's questionable how easily the boat can extricate itself from these little multitudinous, calcified, clingy creatures. Underneath all of them, however, the boat is still pristine. Leaves and beer cans can go away. Even the barnacles can be scraped off. They're clingy, and they're not coming off easily, but they can come off to reveal the perfect nature of the boat. 
It's never been imperfect. Its perfection has just been obscured by a few things. Does that sound like any humans whose teeth you might brush every morning? Hopefully. The being who only needs someone with a scraper to take care of those damn clingy, really tightly held barnacles of karma. The one who finds out he or she can't be the only one to scrape those barnacles away. But with others' help, maybe. And if it's humbly and gratefully accepted. And who might find out that being mindful of the next time a barnacle is trying to attach itself. Those damn barnacles they can always come back. We only need to keep them from attaching themselves too tightly. But under the barnacles, it's perfect. Even with the barnacles, it's perfect. The barnacle is also a perfect barnacle, just doing what a barnacle does. Scrape anyway, and help the next boat owner scrape too. That was Unsan Chita. Thank you for joining us at One Mind Zen. One Mind Zen is a Sangha in the Five Mountain Zen Order in the lineage of Sungsan and Tiktian An, located in Northampton, Massachusetts.